everyone, and welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by Ariel. Howdy ho, friendos. And John. Hey, everybody. I like big books and I cannot lie. Hey, when you spend all day reading, it's bound to happen. But reading really is such a novel idea. You need to start your kids young and make it fun. Will today's founder teach the sharks a lesson or two, or will they tell her to book it? Not to leave you on a cliffhanger, but we do have bills to pay. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you met at a networking event. Was it Ron or could it be Don or John? Maybe Sean? Yeah, that kind of impossible. HubSpot's all new service hub can help. Well, in the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together in one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs and a full 360 view of every customer. So your go-to-market team can keep a pulse on accounts trying to upsell or cross-sell. Also, you can scale support and drive revenue and retention. And you know what that means, better service and happier customers at every stage of their journey. Visit hubspot.com service so you can do more with your customers today. Today in the tank, we have the fidget game. Now the fidget game comes to us from founder Brandy and Brandy is an ex-teacher turned entrepreneur and her product is the fidget game, which is a card game that's really trying to tackle the literacy crisis. So essentially it's trying to gamify reading and making it multi-sensory and aligned with the science of reading to help kids learn how to read faster. She's asking for $500,000 for 10% in her business, which is a $5 million valuation, a big one, the sharks immediately balked at this. But thinking about our pitch and our product and our founder, what are our initial thoughts of the fidget game? This is probably one of my favorite pitches because she incorporated so much of who she is and like her domain authority as a teacher in a really fun way. Product itself looks really great. My only hesitancy with a product like this is how defensible can it be? Because anyone can sell flashcards with a poppet attached to it. So really, my only concern for this founder is how she's able to really scale this and like not have to worry about other competitors coming into the market. But great concept. Yeah, I mean, I think if anything has become clear over the last couple of years, it's that there will be a whole new wave of innovation in the education space coming. Mm -hmm. You know, during the pandemic, everyone got put on Zoom and everyone was kind of like, ah, like that wasn't really the best way to do this distance learning thing. Since then, generative AI has burst onto the scene. Khan Academy is now like powered by Gen AI and is basically personalized tutors for people. I think the idea of creating gamification to help kids and people to learn to read is such a powerful concept. Mm -hmm. And so through that lens, I just think she's part of a market that is growing Mm -hmm. in a market that parents and teachers are going to be looking for alternatives to the methods that have traditionally worked in the past. So I was very excited about that. Kids do love those poppets Mm -hmm. and kids love games. So like through those lenses, she clearly has figured out based on her lived experience how to educate in a better way. And so I'm very bullish on the concept. Yeah. And I mean, we see that perfect niche of gamifying it and making it delightful to kids, but then also the parents. She mentions that like her business had only been 
in business for 13 months as of Shark Tank, and she had already done $1 million in sales. Amazing. She had mentioned that this product blew up on TikTok. As a result, it actually caused her ranking on Amazon to be improved Mm -hmm. because of the rise of organic search on that channel. And it got me thinking, we talk a lot about marketing channels sort of in a silo on this podcast, as if they're like their own standalone units. I want to be a standalone unit. (laughs) That feels like a great nickname. You can be a standalone. John standalone. (laughs) Oh, John, that dude's a standalone unit. TM, there you go. (laughs) I was curious on your take on how marketing channels actually influence each other and how marketers should be thinking about measuring that and quantifying that when it's kind of hard to say this channel's success led to this channel's success led to more sales. Well, Jory, putting on my nerd hat a little bit here. Love it. Love that hat. Correlation does not equate to causation. You're always trying to find ways to tie into like the actual action that a user has when it's not trackable. So I think obviously, yes, coming from TikTok and having that virality sparked what's referred to as dark social. It sounds nefarious. isn't as scary (laughs) as it sounds. But really, when you think about it, it's essentially just when you have private like social media communications through your family, sending like a message through like Messenger or WhatsApp, and they end up clicking a link to learn more, or they end up searching later on about a product. Basically, it's like word of mouth on social. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where she saw most of her success is like she got the virality on TikTok. But then you have things like the moms groups or the parenting groups that are talking about this in like a Facebook group of like, hey, have you tried this out for my kid? Oh, my gosh. Billy's scores went up 30 percent since we started like playing this game and he absolutely loves it. It's just like sharing more intimately with different communities to be able to drive that popularity over time. When I think of the world of standalone units, as you call standalone them, Jory, standalone never escape it there's kind of like we like to classify them into two buckets, direct response channels and influence channels, right? And many channels can have direct response components and influence components, but a direct response component is someone actually like clicks on the content or somebody like clicks on the ad and goes to your website. And as marketers, we love those because they're so measurable. So this is Mm -hmm. kind of Ariel's point on correlation versus causation. When someone clicks on something, you're like, I can causate that that is what drove this action because it's so trackable. Influence is much harder because with influence, you're like, well, maybe someone saw it and had some contribution to what they decided to do, but I can't measure it. I can't track it. And the thing that we know to be absolutely true in the world is that we want to treat them as these standalone things and they're not. They're overlapped and they're Mm -hmm. messy. And a lot of times doing things in influence channel or in an influence way to drive awareness actually ends up resulting in major improvements to things that are direct response like Amazon. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what she's seeing play out here. I don't know, Ariel, how you've approached trying to measure this. I know you've measured consideration and impact a lot. Last time I really dug in on this at a company, we just essentially tried to like correlate it. We looked at different Mm -hmm. spend levels on influence channels and we looked at basically how that impacted our organic results. And we saw such a high correlation between them. Is that the way you'd think about measuring that still or how would you measure it? Yeah, I think looking at where you do see those peaks of activity and what kind of correlates back make the most sense. I also think instead of viewing it as a silo between influence work and DR work, having them work more hand in hand together. So how are you remarketing them? Mm. Are you providing sequential messaging that builds up based off of a really great moment? Or if they saw the video, then maybe it breaks down like the different product features that she has. So I do think oftentimes folks will separate the two as like two distinct activities. But to your point, John, there is so much like overlap where one can kind of lean in and support the other. So there are definitely ways to look at if you want to run like a regression analysis to look at what correlates 
correlation is yeah. more power to you. But <laughs> I think it's pretty clear to see typically within branded search or within like Amazon search or e-commerce or like the easiest vehicles to really compare to moments in time and try to map back what you think could have drove that lift. I will just put one note in about the future of marketing here. We don't talk about like the future of marketing that Ooh, much, but you know, generally speaking, you know, we're coming out of a decade where direct response dominated. Right. And because there was so much upside in direct response on all these social networks, mm -hmm. it's really was like the dominant flex as a marketer was to say mm -hmm. like, I am just going to be absolutely extraordinary at running a really high efficiency direct response model. That's starting to get disrupted. And it's a little bit back to the future because we're back to, you know, the early 2000s when direct response wasn't nearly as big, was only available through direct mail. <laughs> and instead, marketers are having to spend on influence. And so it's yep. pretty interesting to see how these things ebb and flow over mm -hmm. time. If you were to be hired on as their first marketer, you know that there's some dark social at play. What are your pieces of advice for the fidget game moving forward if the idea is scale and expansion? I think having a branded community, like a Facebook group, okay. not necessarily to push out your own content, but to allow it to be an open forum for like parents to like share tips about things, to talk about your product. So to have like a community marketer or someone who has a really strong background in leading community growth would probably make the most sense for her. Personally, I'd go speed. I would just speed, 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 John's speed. Like, I would ship just... it. Johnny, ship it over here. Seriously, I would just get in as many languages as possible. Mm -hmm. And I would build a model where you have someone who has really scaled things internationally over time, come in to run the business side mm -hmm. and just build up local teams to go do that stuff and stress a lot less about like making it perfect and instead just making it a lot faster. Yeah. So it's clear that she wants a shark for that product expansion, but she really just wants to focus on what inspires her, which is being a teacher and creating these elements. Mm -hmm. What was your thought of that? I mean, her numbers, her 1.3 million in like 13 months. I yeah. really feel like she knows her product. She has a good audience for it. And if she wants to lean in more towards the creative lens and coming up a product line extension, like I wouldn't be as worried as much as a shark. I mean, I'm in the middle on it a little bit. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can ask an investor to run your business. They're an advisor at best. Sure. You as the CEO have a responsibility to run the business. I would personally, if I were her, consider getting a real business partner or COO yeah. to help drive the business forward if that's not what she's interested in. Mm -hmm. I think we would be totally remiss to also not mention the inspiration that mm -hmm. our founder got from one of our sharks in particular. Despite their response to the initial valuation, Damon, Kevin, and Barbara were very much in on this deal just because we found out actually that each of them is dyslexic, which before viewing this Shark Tank episode, I didn't know. And I think that was an example of vulnerability from the sharks that I was like, okay, this founder is walking away with a deal with someone. But we found out that actually a lot of the founder's origin story was really inspired by Barbara and how Barbara had responded to a messy divorce. And the founder herself was going through relationship turmoil when she started this company. So it was very clear that as soon as Barbara was on board, this is who the founder wanted to work with. There was some slight negotiation, but Barbara ultimately offered $500,000 for 15%. And the Done. founder locked that in, was like, you are my dream shark. You are my inspiration. Let's make a deal. It's like so cool. What I was that was like one yeah. of the best. You know, you watch a lot of these pitches on Shark Tank over time. Boy, did that one feel awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Today's episode was brought to you by the magnanimous Matthew Brown. Editing comes from Robert Hartwig and support from Melanie Romero. 
Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you subscribe to the greatest podcasts ever. That does it for me. See you next episode in the tank with another bite. Create Like the Greats, hosted by Ross Simmons, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Each episode hosts an in-depth analysis of some of the greatest creations and creators of all time, along with deep dive conversations on the creative process that went into building companies and brands. If you like learning about history or learning about the creative process, you'll like this podcast. Listen to Create Like the Greats wherever you get your podcasts.